Hey there, it's Debbie, and welcome to Playback Friday. Most Fridays, I re release one of my favorite conversations from the archive. So, unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one yet. And even if you have, you just might get something completely different from it listening to it this time around. So you can have this wonderful ability to sort of think deeply about something, but when it comes time to actually write something quickly or take notes or do a simple page of math facts, you're struggling with that and that's frustrating for you. And then it's frustrating for your teachers and parents who think like, well, wait a minute, like this should be really easy for you. So you, the child has frustration all around them. Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and I'm really excited about today's show because we are going to be talking all about processing speed. Slow processing speed is a challenge faced by so many differently wired kids and present alongside many different neuro differences, including dyslexia, giftedness, ADHD, sensory issues, and more. So today I'm sharing with you an expert on all things processing speed to break it all down for you. Dr. Ellen Broughton is the Associate Director of the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at Massachusetts General Hospital, Director of the Learning and Emotional Assessment Program at Mass General, and an Assistant Professor of Psychology at Harvard Medical School. She is widely recognized as an expert in the field of pediatric neuropsychological and psychological assessment, especially in the areas of assessing learning disabilities and attention disorders. Her most recent book is entitled Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up, Help Your Child Overcome Slow Processing Speed and Succeed in a Fast-Paced World. And I can tell you right now, Ellen knows her stuff. If you have a child who struggles with slow processing speed in any area of his or her life, I have a feeling you're going to find this conversation as fascinating as I did. Thanks for listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To learn more about Tilt, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Oh, it's great to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about something that impacts many families in the Tilt community, processing speed, or more specifically, slow processing speed. But before we get into that, I would love it if you could just take a few minutes to tell us about your background and the kind of work that you do as a child psychologist. So I started out actually uh, right out of undergraduate as a special education teacher. So I taught uh, special education for six years and then went back to get a degree in psychology and specialize in neuropsychological assessment. So my area of interest is in sort of the crossover between school problems and sort of like very real world kind of problems and neuropsychology, which is looking at how the brain, you know, understanding how the brain impacts what we do or getting information about our functioning in different areas of life, like language and visual motor skills and problem-solving skills. Um, and that's what neuropsychology informs. So I've been interested in that area of um, education and neuropsychology. Very cool. So tell me then, I know that you work with the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds, which looks like an amazing resource. And you're on you're one of the experts at understood.org. And so kind of seems like you have a lot going on. And you're working in a lot of different capacities with these great organizations. I do. And and one of the other things that I do at Massachusetts General Hospitals direct a uh, program and assessment center um, called the Learning and Emotional Assessment Program. So I have a little bit of I, I 
I'm able to do clinical work with families and kids and direct a program and then also have become very active in um, getting the information out to the public through Understood and through the Clay Center. So it's been great to be able to do that. Yeah, the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds. I spent a lot of time on the site today. It seems like a fantastic resource and understood.org as well. That's one of our favorite resources. And for those listening, they specialize on ADHD and learning disorders, learning differences. Yes. And the Clay Center is a little bit more broad where we look more at emotional issues and more sort of like um, what's happening in the in the media or in the world and how that might impact kids too. So they're, they're both great resources for parents. Yeah. I'm so happy to have them on my radar personally and to be able to share them with the TILT community. So as an introduction to our conversation, I recently shared an article from understood.org on the Tilt Facebook page. It was called Slow Processing Speed and Anxiety, What You Need to Know. And I get a lot of engagement on the Facebook page, but this post in particular generated a lot of discussion among parents, and it also raised a lot of questions. I got a lot of comments from parents saying, you know, this is the first that they had heard of slow processing speed and that the article really connected a bunch of dots for them in relation to their child. There were others who were kind of confused about the definition if it really applied, And I wanted to share a comment that one woman left that we we had a back and forth, but I don't know that I answered her question sufficiently. She had said, what's the opposite of slow processing speed? This sounds like it's slow input for our daughter. The trouble seems to be slow output. She takes in processes fast, but then getting the response out, especially written, is slow and painful. And she said the anxiety loop is very similar, but not the underlying issue. And I think where we netted out was that still sounds like slow processing speed, but could you kind of shed light on this for us? Yes. Tell us exactly what slow processing speed is. Yes. So let me comment on that first. I It, it is, they are one in the same in some ways that it, it's not just about taking in information slowly or just putting it out slowly. Sometimes it's both, sometimes it's one or the other. So basically, you know, going back to what you were saying before about that a lot of people didn't know what slow processing speed was, it is a fairly new kind of concept. And it's one of the things that I was finding in, you know, I've been testing kids now for 20 years. One of the things I was finding is that there was this group of kids that regardless of the diagnosis, or sometimes they had no diagnosis, like by by that, I mean, they didn't meet criteria for ADHD or a reading disability or dyslexia, they just tended to be struggling in school because it took them a long time to do stuff. So slow processing speed, one of the the, the most simple uh, ways of defining it is it's how long it takes you to get something done. And there are a lot of different aspects to that. So it's there's a, a, a part that has to do with us being able to process it, take it in. There's the part of us having to kind of come up with a response, and then it's the output. So for any one child, it could be one or all of those things. And very often, and I think in some ways, the person that you were commenting on that she said her child takes stuff in very quickly, that's very often, you know, they're very bright kids. And what happens is they can take it all in, but the ability to kind of get it out on paper for many different reasons, sometimes it's in the organization of information, sometimes it's a a graphomotor issue. And and so there are different aspects where that can break down for you. So again, we've got sort of like, it can be slow at getting process in, slow at kind of 
working with it in the mind and then slow getting it out. But then there are also different aspects of that as well. You can have verbal processing problems, visual processing, motor processing problems, and just kind of general sort of processing, just, you know, sort of like taking in information just in general. So lots of different things that we can talk about in this. And unfortunately, it's not a nice, easy little concept. Um, And that's why people are confused. That's why it probably generated a lot of discussion. Yeah. And, you know, when you were speaking to the the question that I had, I, I know that the woman's daughter is a very bright person. And, and I and I know that for many gifted children, having a slow processing speed can actually drag their IQ scores down, right? And, and then I've heard from people that we've interacted with, and when we had our son assess that that disconnect between the intelligence and the processing speed can create a lot of frustration and cause a lot of problems. Is that what you see? Absolutely, it is. And and really, almost regardless of what the cognitive ability is in terms of like verbal intellect or problem solving intellect or skills, we like to be in sync. So we like, you know, it's, it's much better in some ways to just be average in everything, because you're not going to be frustrated in most things, because everything is going to be sort of like everything that you're that you interact with is pretty much the same. But when you're very bright, and a lot of things come easily to you, and then your ability to actually execute the task is much slower, you're feeling frustrated yourself because we don't like that feeling of inconsistency within ourselves. The other area of frustration is that people look at you and say, well, you're so smart. Like, why couldn't you get that done? Like, that was really simple. And Oftentimes, when we're talking about processing speed, we're talking about measuring it very simply. So, in, in the kinds of tests we use to measure it, it's your simple speed of being able to, for example, copy a code or do a group of math problems. It's not measuring the depth of your thinking given unlimited time at all. So, you can have this wonderful ability to sort of think deeply about something, but when it comes time to actually write something quickly or take notes or do a simple page of math facts, you're struggling with that and that's frustrating for you. And then it's frustrating for your teachers and parents who think like, well, wait a minute, like this should be really easy for you. So, you, the child has frustration all around them. Right. Yes. And I feel like I can relate to everything that you're saying in terms of what we've experienced <laughs> with our child. And, and I know what a lot of parents in the TILT community are also struggling with. And so as you're talking, I'm like kind of jotting down words and I'm thinking of asynchronous development, which I hear a lot about. I'm thinking of the out of sync child, you know, kids that are identified as having sensory issues and, and then of course, ADHD, which is something that my son has. There is a piece of that, whether it's because of being distracted easily, things take longer. So right, I guess right. I'm, I'm curious, how, how do you go about determining what's what in this? And, and does it matter, I guess, even? Does it matter to be able to differentiate them all if the core issues are the same? I do think that it does matter to differentiate between them all because you want to know where it's breaking down for your child. So, for instance, going back again to the parent that you were just referencing before, she knows that it's it's not in the input. It's somewhere in the output. And so in terms of being able to determine what kind of treatments are most helpful, getting a really thorough evaluation that looks at all of these areas of functioning can be extremely helpful. And so you want to know, rarely is a child delayed in all areas of processing speed. 
and it cuts across disorders. So you mentioned a few right there. We do find that a, a significant number of kids with ADHD have slow processing speed, but not all of them do. Um, we do know that a, a fair number of kids with anxiety or reading disabilities have problems with slower processing speed, but it's not consistently across the board. So it's one of those traits that tends to run across symptoms. And depending on whether it's there or not, you may want to change your approach for a child with ADHD. So you may want to know that, for instance, you don't you have a child who's not going to be overly quick at doing things, but somebody who's going to take longer. For a child with dyslexia, for example, who has slow processing speed, you may gear your reading tutoring or the kinds of things that you're using to treat the dyslexia in a little bit of a different way, knowing that you have a child who's got slower language processing skills versus a child who has slower graphomotor processing skills where you're going to see problems with getting, you know, sort of output stuff on the page, for example. So I do feel, and of course it's, you know, I'm kind of biased in this way because this is what I do for a living, <laughs> but I but I do feel like getting a really thorough evaluation when, when you're really confused as a parent can be so helpful. And in those moments when you're thinking like, oh no, I just can't, how are we ever going to get through this day when we can't even get through breakfast, it can kind of give you a chance to sort of see the big picture and take a step back and kind of like, oh, all right, yep, I knew this was going to be hard. Now we can fix this and move on. Mm Mm-hmm. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet, travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of Gotcha Day when we adopted our sweet Haskell, my cat who acts like a dog, plays fetch, and who I'm pretty sure has sensory processing differences. Are you getting a new pet soon? That means you'll need to think about getting the necessities like food, toys, a bed. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. 
That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Is there a, a specific age range that these issues tend to become more evident or that you recommend people who are looking at doing an assessment that they do it within the certain age ages? You know, I find that this becomes a bigger problem when kids get into school. You know, if you've got kind of a pokey three-year-old or, you know, a a five-year-old who's, you know, kind of slow to get ready and get going on things, there's there's a lot of leeway at that age. It's really when the academic skills become really, really important. And it kind of depends on where you live and and what your school system is like or what your private school, if you're in private school, is like. But generally, I find that this starts to become a problem sometime between second and fifth grade. And, you know, for some kids who are really bright, they can kind of get by and people will just sort of say, oh, well, you know, they're just not very motivated or, you know, he just doesn't work hard enough or something like that. And that's rarely ever the case. I mean, you know, fourth graders are usually typically motivated to do well. They like to please people. Mm -hmm. So if your child is finding, you know, if you're finding that your child's not doing that, there's usually a pretty good reason. So I, I would say sometimes that early elementary school time is a good time to do that. Now, some of these kids will already have been diagnosed with ADHD or uh, with a learning disability and the processing speed is just a layer of that or, you know, to that. But what happens is sometimes you've got a child with ADHD, you find great ways to treat the ADHD, either medication or things in the environment that you're changing, but somehow life doesn't get that much easier. And sometimes it's the, it's the processing speed that is the thing that's just, that really makes life more difficult. Mm-hmm. You can get them to pay attention, you can sit them in the front of the class, all of that sort of stuff. But when it's, you know, when it's time to actually do the stuff that needs to be done, that's where it can get, you know, pretty difficult still. Yeah, I mean, I remember when Asher was in school, I homeschool him now, but he spent his first three years in both private and public schools. And the timed math you know, how many math problems can you finish in X amount of time? And he's, he's really good at math. He's a stronger, stronger on the verbal reading side, but he still excels in math, but put time pressure on him and all bets are off. Like he <laughs> did not yeah, go well. Exactly. And yeah, so I can see how that's a very kind of typical scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you do then. So I mean, you said, you know, you can be treating the ADHD or, you know, we have a lot of listeners and who are whose children are have high functioning autism and other things going on anxiety. So you can treat those things, but you may not necessarily be addressing the speed processing issues. So how do you go about doing that? So I just want to reiterate what you just said is that if there is another diagnosis, you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to treat that, the the underlying issue. Um, because anytime you can make life more efficient for your child, that is the key. Just think of the word efficiency. How can I make life more efficient and more seamless so that the processing issues don't cause as many issues for us? Mm-hmm. So given that, so let's say you've done that. There are a few things that I think are helpful. One is just getting more information about what's going on. Sometimes I find for parents that just getting 
a diagnosis or just looking at a child's profile can be so therapeutic in a way. You know, I've had parents say, okay, so I can't really expect him to be that fast at this. And I would say, yeah, that's right. That that's just something that you just need to be aware of. And they're like, well, okay, I can, I can live with that then. Then the other things that we talk about in our in the book that I wrote about um, bright kids who can't keep up is that there, we call the three A's of processing speed. So we want to accept it. We want to, you know, accept the problem, which I've already talked about. We want to accommodate it. And then we want to advocate for them. So acceptance is that, you know, like I've already talked about getting that thorough evaluation. You want to document the problem and you need to sort of, uh, in some ways, accept the fact, like it sounds like you have for your son, like, you know what? Math facts are not, the be all end all. And he's just never going to be the first one done with the one minute multiplication tables Mm -hmm. and kind of let that go. In some ways that can be so freeing. Then we want to make sure that we're accommodating a child and accommodating the number one things you can do is to give them extra time, extra time for everything, but particularly extra time on tests, extra time for being able to get notes done in class, any sorts of accommodations that they can put into place for school to make, again, life more efficient and to give them adequate time to do what it is that they need to get done is key. But then I also think there's a piece here, too, about advocating. And it starts with the parents to be able to say, you know what, this is my child's profile in today's world. And that's a big piece of this, too. 40 years ago, this wasn't an issue. You could be sort of the last one done and and it wasn't such a big deal. Now we have so many things to juggle that it's so much harder to get everything done, even for people who don't have slower processing speed. So I think being able to advocate for your child, being able to educate your family, your child's teachers, and then also being able to get the teachers on board can be extremely helpful. And then eventually help your child understand this is who he is. And there's no shame in being a slower, deeper thinker. In fact, it's kind of what a lot of us strive for in life. And I've, you know, I've said before many times, like, you know, we all go to sort of like the yoga retreats, we go to the you know, like the Zen centers, we go to, mm-hmm. you know, our, our church groups or wherever to kind of slow down. We take, you know, workshops on how to slow down. They already do that very naturally. So they, you know, we have a lot to learn from kids who are naturally paced in this. We, we just have a lot to learn from them. Hmm. It's so interesting. I love that. This is definitely something Asher struggles with. And he's also moves way too fast. And it's, it's interesting to think of that disconnect too. like, sometimes his mind is moving so fast, I can't possibly keep up with what he's saying to me. And then in these other situations, he, I like that just kind of recognizing that he's self pacing, and just accepting that that's the way that he, that he needs to process things. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, like we all have a certain pace of and tempo of how fast we talk, how fast we walk. I mean, yeah, we can be pushed in one direction or or another and taught to slow down or speed up, but there's only so much room any person can really do. And so I think being able to accept that and in some ways understanding who you are as a parent. Are you one of those fast parents who kind of has a slower paced child and is that causing problems in the family or are you both sort of slower paced and is that causing problems because nobody can get anything done? So I think kind of looking at your own parenting style, the, the best kind of parenting style for kids with this slower pace is to be flexible and, and truly 
that's always the best anyway in any parenting style. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. sometimes that's why I think this topic resonates with a wider group of parents because everybody's sort of feeling frazzled. All parents are feeling like I can't get my child to get everything done that he's supposed to get done. So there's a lot that's applicable to lots of parents, you know, regardless of what their child's cognitive profile is like. But I think being able to be flexible and know sort of instinctively, okay, I need to slow down because I need to match my child right here at this time, or that, nope, you know what, at this time, I'm going to need to push him a little bit, and we're going to have to figure out how to get that done. So not every day is going to be the same. At the same time, you want to keep things as consistent as you can, um, because, you know, consistency breeds efficiency. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mm-hmm. but you can't be rigid. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like what you said, too. Uh, the, the three A's uh, that are in your book, I love them. And, you know, just touching upon the first one, the accept it. You know, I've had other guests on the show. We've spent a lot of time talking about this idea of reality versus our expectations. And that is where so much of the struggle comes for us as parents. So just that piece alone can, I can see how that could change everything when you just accept that your child needs, you know, 10 minutes to put on their shoes or whatever right, it right. is to kind of get, to get out the door and that shift. And not only does that help you as a parent, but it, our children don't feel the, the stress, the energy that we're kind of putting out there. <laughs> right. You know, right. Cause they're, they're constantly being confronted with the fact that they're disappointing us. And um, especially for those of us, like I have to say, I have the same sort of pattern as, as you. I have a son who's now 22 who he's got the same profile. I didn't write the book about him, but I could draw from a lot of just what it feels like to be a mom with um, a child with slower processing speed. But I'm really quick and fast and I'm always doing things. And as he's grown into adulthood, I found like I've learned so much from him about just the simple joys of like making a meal as opposed to trying to get everything done on my to-do list where, you know, he's sort of like, you know, he comes home from vacation from college and I'm like, oh, we should do this and this and this. He's like, mom, I just like kind of just like hanging out with you and, and cooking dinner. This is like an activity for me. And so it's it's such a great way to sort of be if we can learn to value that. That's awesome. I love that. I had a question and then I want to ask a little bit more about your book about accommodations. So I've had a couple educators on the show who are, and we've talked about different ways to ask for things in a school setting, but I don't know in terms of a diagnosis, do processing speed issues give you the kind of diagnosis potentially if you don't have a secondary or, or maybe a primary diagnosis of ADHD or something that would allow you to get either an IEP or a 504 or to get special accommodations in a classroom? Usually it's not sufficient. It used to be. So it used to be when we had a different diagnostic manual. So the DSM-4 allowed us to have a category called learning disability NOS or not otherwise specified. And uh, many people like me would put that under, you know, that sort of processing speed issues under that. So right now it's typically not sufficient to just say, oh, my child, you know, look at the like for the WISC, the Wexler Intelligence Scale for Children, they have a very, very slow processing speed. Everything else is at, you know, the average range or above. That's typically not enough. Now, some school systems will allow that and and get it. You know, like people who understand kids understand that that can be much more impairing than 
mild dyslexia without processing speed issues. What I generally recommend is to find something in the profile where processing speed is causing real-time, real-life difficulties. So, for example, it may just be in just math fluency that really, like, you know, their reading is great and their uh, reading fluency is fine, but their math fluency isn't. So, for example, I think you, you were talking about, you know, your son being great at math, but yet when he had to do math fluency skills, he was weak in those. That specific learning disability in, for example, math fluency skills does get most kids accommodations on a 504 or if they would need it on an IEP. So yes, you you want to get an evaluation that kind of digs deep into, you know, how does processing speed affect academics? That's the best way around getting services outside of also, you know, if they have also an attention problem. But to really look at how does processing speed impact written expression? How does it impact um, reading fluency? math fluency, that's the best way to try and document. That's great advice. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. You know, I know for some schools, and this is another conversation we were having on the Facebook group uh, just this past week, is that 
if a child, especially if a child is academically gifted, but they have other things going on, such as processing issues, but if they're still kind of doing okay academically, like if it's they don't see it as negatively impacting them too much, then it can be harder to get those accommodations. But um, it sounds like with anything, the more information you can have about your child and provide to the school, and then with that advocacy piece, will kind of put you in the best position to support your child in school. Yes. Yeah. So if you get an evaluation, you want to make sure that they look at academic skills and how this impacts academic skills. Almost always it does. Almost always Mm -hmm. you can find some kind of documentation. Great. So I would love if you could just tell us a a little bit more about your book, Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up. And I think it just came out in 2014. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So tell us who it's for and and what you're hoping to what you hope to achieve through writing it. So what I wanted to achieve in writing it is to kind of give a voice to the parents who had been dealing with this and didn't have a way of describing it. And I think over the years of of evaluating kids, I noticed that the kids who just never seemed to, you know, kept coming back year after year and never seeming to live up to their potential they oftentimes, it was the processing speed that that tended to be the weakest. And so I wanted to kind of identify what the problem was and, and understand it better. So what I've tried to do is to kind of present it, look at how brain, what we know about brain research can kind of inform what's happening. Now, we don't know an awful lot about processing speed. It's really kind of a very new area of research, to be honest. Um, and, I, and I think with today's ability to kind of look at the brain in terms of the kinds of imaging we're able to do, it's allowing us to see how the brain actually processes information, not just looking at it statically, but looking at it in real time. So I think it can be very helpful to have an idea that this is something that happens in the brain, that it happens based on how quickly your brain can process the chemicals that are going on. And it's a a much longer answer. But but I think there's uh, information in the book about that, that I feel like for some parents can be very helpful. And then I wanted, we wanted to talk about how to help your child in daily life. How does it apply to social relationships, to the classroom, to your daily life? Um, What are the emotional costs of processing speed? And as part of that, we looked at our own clinic at Massachusetts General Hospital, and kind of just looked at, okay, so what do these kids look like? You know, what what kind of other issues do they have? And it was very interesting for us to find out that our clinical hunch was correct, that a lot of these kids have problems with social skills. Not all of them by any means, but, you know, social skills happen in real time. And so uh, if you're kind of slow to sort of process what's going on, sometimes social situations can bypass you. So we wanted to look at all of those sorts of areas and kind of give a little bit of information about each one of them. Not everyone will apply to every single parent. You know, some parents will say, oh my gosh, it's terrible at home, but school seems to be okay, or, you know, everything impacts everything except social relationships are great. But there, I think there are tips in the book for parents in any one of those areas, some strategies and some things to think about that I think could be helpful for them. And so interesting, I hadn't thought about the social situations. It makes total sense as you explain it, but I I hadn't made that connection before. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of funny because I would hear that a lot. And in fact, sometimes people were coming to me when really the issue was the slower processing speed coming to me saying, you know, like, 
my pediatrician thinks he might have autism or, you know, like, because the social situations are difficult, but he doesn't seem that way at all to me. And sure enough, it didn't have anything to do with autism spectrum, but that the social issues are what got them into my door because that's where uh, the biggest problem was for you know, what the parents were reporting is we're just, he's just having so much trouble with social situations. So when we looked at our own study group, we found that, yeah, there is a pretty high probability that you're going to have some problems with social relationships if you've got slower processing speed. And it kind of surprised us a little bit, but then at the same time, it didn't because we do hear that a lot. Interesting. I'm I'm actually just, uh, I was on the website for the publisher of your book, and I saw there's a downloadable processing speed checklist for parents. There is, yes. It looks like I, I'm just flipping through it as you're talking, and there's a whole section on slow processing speed and friendship. So you want to, just as a way, kind of a last question, um, explain what this is and how parents could, could use this to find out more about their child. So one of the things you can do is that there are a few questionnaires in there that, um, that you can do to kind of gauge, first of all, your child's processing speed. So you can kind of look at just verbal versus visual versus motor versus academic to kind of get a sense, even just like being able to rate where the problems are. We also have a checklist in there that, that gives you the opportunity to rate your own processing speed so that you can sort of get a sense of, okay, where is the match between myself and my child? And then also because social relationships are so significant, we've got a questionnaire in there as well to kind of look at what to look at at different ages, where slow processing speed might be more difficult or might impair uh, friendships and that sort of thing. And then there's another one in there too that we haven't talked about is just the emotional cost of slow processing speed that a lot of times kids wind up getting sort of down, anxious, depressed, because it takes a toll. If, if this is something that's untreated and mm-hmm. that's un- unacknowledged even more so than untreated, that there's a cost in, in one's self-esteem. So there's a, there are a, a number of different questionnaires that if they go on the website, guilford.com, that they can download to use to kind of just give themselves a, a little heads up on what's going on for their child and, and, like I said, even for themselves. That's great. And for listeners, I will include the link to that resource in the show notes for this episode. So no, that's fantastic. And and uh, just to touch upon what you said at the end uh, about the emotional cost to the child, I think that that's a big thing that we we kind of believe in here at Tilt is having no shame and being open and transparent with what's going on, both within your own community as a parent, you know, within your families and, and how you move through the world, but also with your child. And, and because oftentimes when they understand what's going on, it not only can take that anxiety away, but they can feel empowered and kind of understand the gifts and what's going on with them as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's what we all strive for in life. We all strive to understand ourselves better. I mean, that's, a, you know, like for so many of us, that's the, our journey in life is to understand who we are. And in some ways, they get an extra head start on that. That's a great thing. So <laughs> it's, it's true. Um, you know, it's, there isn't any shame in it. In fact, it's it's something to be sort of embraced and to be like, oh, phew, I've, I've, I've got a few of those things, you know, checked off already. And I'm only 12, for example, and I already know this much about myself. I think it can lead to a lot fewer problems later on in life. That's so funny. I always used to tell people, I think I know more about my child's brain than most parents, you know, would need ever need to know. And consequently, I talk about all of it with Asher, and he's fascinated by brain science. And he yeah, at 11, his self knowledge is probably what I had 
maybe by the time I was 30. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you have to kind of find out about it on the hard way too. Um, yeah. But if you can teach, you know, children at an early age, like, you know, it's going to take me longer to get done with this and they can be honest and open with, you know, their teachers or their employers and, and figure out a way, to, you know, it's not like an excuse. It's a way of sort of saying, this is who I am. And I, I, here's, here's what I'm capable of. And it can be very empowering. Absolutely. So if people want to follow your work and your writing, I mean, do you have a good spot for them to go check out your do you keep a blog? I know that you, you've written for understood.org. And it's- so I do. So understood.org is a good way. Um, the MGH Clay org is also a good way to follow me. I'm on Instagram and uh, on Twitter. Twitter is um, Ellen Broughton. Yeah. And so I think uh, those are probably the best ways to follow our, our work here. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and share this insight. As as I said earlier, I know this is something that is really going to resonate with a lot of parents. And I hopefully this has cleared up some of the confusion and certainly sharing some great resources. And again, I'll include links to all, all the resources we talked about in the show notes. But thank you again for coming on the show, Ellen. You're very welcome. It's been delightful. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To learn more about Dr. Ellen Broughton, her book, Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up, and get links for all the resources we talked about in today's episode, visit the show notes at tiltparenting.com session 19. If you know of other parents raising unique kids who would connect with our mission, enjoy listening to our podcast and being a part of the Tilt community, please help us spread the word. And if you're not already following us on Facebook, please like our page at facebook.com slash tiltparenting. We do our best to curate the most interesting articles we can find to inform, support, and inspire the important work we're all doing as parents of differently wired kids. We would love for you to be a part of the conversation. Thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.